We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Parashat Akev is about cause and effect. Even the word Akev itself means consequence. Its most famous passage, which we popularly know as the second paragraph of the Shema, is a prime example of this teaching. If you hear and obey the mitzvot that I command you this day, then I will grant rain for your land in season, rain in autumn and rain in spring. You shall gather in your grain and wine and oil. I will provide grass in your fields for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. However, if Israel fails to obey the covenant... Adonai's anger will flare up against you, and God will close up the sky so that there will be no rain, and the earth will not yield its produce. You will disappear quickly from the good land that Adonai is giving you. The cause and effect here works in both directions, positive and negative. Do what you're supposed to do, and things will go well. Don't do what you're supposed to do, or do what you're not supposed to do, and things will go badly. There are, of course, major theological problems with this formula, among them being the reality that good things frequently happen to bad people and bad things frequently happen to good people. But the notion that Israel's ability to live and flourish in the land that God is giving them depends on their adherence to the covenant is a message that transcends those theological difficulties. One doesn't need to accept as fact that covenantal violations will inevitably result in expulsion in order to internalize the basic message that God has not promised nor given the land of Israel to the Jews unconditionally, and that on some level our tradition believes that certain behaviors will make Israel worthy or unworthy of living in the land. It's not, then, that the land of Israel is God's gift to the Jewish people, but rather that the land of Israel is only fit to be inhabited by those who uphold the covenant. Those who dishonor the land's inherent sanctity by violating God's law are liable to be expelled. The land is always a conditional gift. In our Parsha, Moses underscores this point by saying, And when Adonai your God has thrust them out, the nations that live in the land at the time of the Torah, when Adonai your God has thrust them from your path, say not to yourselves, Adonai has enabled us to possess this land because of our virtue. It is rather because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It's not because of your virtues and your rectitude that you will be able to possess their country. It is because of their wickedness that Adonai your God is dispossessing those nations before you. In other words, says God, I'm not giving you this land because you're so great. I'm giving you this land because its current inhabitants ceased to deserve it with the not-so-subtle implication that the same fate will invariably befall the Israelites 
should they similarly fail to live up to the moral demands of living on sacred ground. When Judah and Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 BCE, the defeated Jews in the midst of their captivity in Babylon understood their defeat in precisely those theological terms. In the language of the Book of Lamentations, Jerusalem has greatly sinned, therefore she has become a mockery. And when they prayed for a reversal of fortune, they did not couch their request in the language of national right, but rather in the language of repentance, that if God were to take them back and restore them to the land, they would act differently, living in a manner worthy of God's gift. Hashivenu Adonai Elecha Venashuva. Take us back to you, Adonai, and we will return. Similarly, when the Romans destroyed the second temple, and exiled the Jews. The rabbis interpreted that catastrophe through the lens of divine justice. Because of our sins, we were exiled from the land. The only way to ultimately return home would be through sincere repentance. And the only way to remain in the land once restored is to do what we had failed to do previously, live in accordance with God's law. Those of us who in our lifetimes have merited to behold the miracle that exceeded the wildest dreams of our ancestors, the restoration of the Jewish people to our historic homeland as a free and sovereign nation, would do well to be mindful of this biblical exhortation, that we do not occupy the land by birthright, but rather by righteousness and justice, and we remain worthy of the land only by virtue of our adherence to God's highest standards. While fulfilling the covenant as a whole is ultimately the precondition for possessing the land, the tradition holds that certain commandments are more strongly tied to remaining in the land than others. The rabbinic tradition, for instance, blames the destruction of the first temple on the grievous and pervasive sins of idolatry, incest, adultery, and bloodshed. The second temple, they teach, was a different case altogether. People at that time, as it turned out, observed the Torah's commandments and rejected idolatry. What sealed their doom, according to the rabbis, was sinat chinam, unrestrained hatred. The rabbinic tradition doesn't simply invent these theological explanations for exile. Rather, it draws them in letter and in spirit from the Torah itself. Idolatry and bloodshed, for instance, are both specifically named in the Torah as sins that will result in expulsion. The shedding of innocent blood, whether through miscarriage of justice, or through criminality, or through unsanctioned warfare, is called out in particularly colorful language. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and the land can have no expiation for blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Indeed, idolatry aside, the crimes specified in the Torah as grounds for expulsion are almost universally what we would call ben adam l'chavero, offenses not against God, but against other human beings. Our parsha singles out one noteworthy commandment as a prerequisite for holding on to the land. You must love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Hence the rabbinic teaching that even in the Second Temple period, when people generally lived in accordance with the Torah, the temple was nevertheless destroyed, Jerusalem raised, and the people expelled, 
because they were not living by the democratic and humanitarian spirit of the Torah, a spirit that urges us to love our neighbor as ourselves and even to love the stranger as ourselves. Our claim to the land is dependent ultimately on how we treat others, both our fellow Jews and those of other backgrounds who live among us and under our dominion. When we fail to act lovingly toward Jew and non-Jew alike, we forfeit our right to the territory. The land will remain ours only if we, as a matter of policy and practice, treat all others how we ourselves would want to be treated. A Jewish state in the land of Israel, therefore, that denies full religious equality to all Jews, Orthodox as well as conservative, reform, reconstructionist, and secular, that refuses equality of access and resources to non-Orthodox denominations, that restricts the free exercise of all forms of Jewish expression, and especially one that criminalizes non-Orthodox rabbis from performing the rites of our tradition as their conscience dictates, as happened just this past week when a colleague of mine, Rabbi Dov Hion, was arrested for the crime of officiating a wedding while not being an Orthodox rabbi, is a state that, according to our tradition, cannot long endure upon a land that requires the equal and fair treatment of all inhabitants. A state of Israel that only that declares only Jews have the right to self-determination in the land, that denies full, equal legal status to non-Jewish citizens, downgrading the status of their language and culture, that legalizes the criminal act of building upon stolen land, the core dictates of Israel's new so-called nation-state law, cannot long endure upon a land synonymous with a God who has created everyone equally in the divine image, and who demands we love and treat all people equally. A state of Israel that denies asylum to thousands of Africans fleeing horrific violence and devastating poverty, that refuses to accept as Jews thousands of Abu Yadaya Ugandans who have lived as Jews for generations, that overturns conversions even from Orthodox rabbis it doesn't deem to be kosher enough is, according to Torah and tradition, unworthy of a land in which God's presence is said to most acutely abide. And finally, but perhaps most urgently, a state of Israel that for over 50 years has denied millions of Arabs living under its dominion their own right to national self-determination, instead of posing upon them a demeaning, dehumanizing, and often deadly military occupation that strips them of equal rights, freedom of movement, land, and economic opportunity, all while continuing to allow and in some cases encourage the settlement of its own population in the disputed territory, undercutting the viability of a future independent Palestinian state, a state of Israel that routinely violates human rights conventions, and undermines its own cherished democratic values, is incompatible with a land which our Torah portion teaches the eyes of God are always upon. Yes, it is true that there is much to be proud of that the seed of Israel does and has accomplished. And it is also true that the Palestinians are guilty of decades of bloodshed and brutality. They, too, and engaging in such inexcusable behavior make themselves unworthy of the land. But their wrongs do not justify our own, 
we are accountable for our own covenantal violations. And the land cannot abide any inhabitants, whether they be Jew or non-Jew, who would do unto others what they themselves hate. Those of us who love Israel and who desire the world's only Jewish state to long endure in that sacred land, the land that was our people's birthplace, the land of Zion and Jerusalem, are thus duty-bound, I think, to speak out, to hold our Israeli brothers and sisters and the leaders of the state accountable to our tradition's most cherished values, and to urge American leaders to constantly work with Israel not only to make her more secure, but also to make her more righteous and just. My colleague, Rabbi David Seidenberg, points out that our Torah portion claims that the fundamental difference between the land of Israel and other lands is its unique dependence on heaven for sustenance. A land that must drink from the heavens, he says, is a precarious land. But it is also, in the same sense, a land touched by the immediacy of God's judgment, and hence also God's presence. It is this very fact that makes Canaan Israel a holy land. Israel, our ancestors believed, is the place on earth closest to God's presence. And its proximity to God means its inhabitants have a unique responsibility. In the words of the Torah, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in which I myself abide, for I, Adonai, am your God. Defiling the land in the view of Torah and tradition is uniquely tied to our treatment of each other and the stranger. To live together there with God, we must first live together there in true brotherhood and sisterhood with each other and with all God's children.